Hi everyone, welcome back to Transform the Norm, the podcast. My name is Plein Elsa and in this podcast we're going to look for some answers to some difficult questions related to transitional justice and sexual reproductive health and rights. You hear me saying we? Yes, that's right. Every episode a different guest will join me. I have lots of experiences in the field and often work as independent consultants. Together we use this space to provide hands-on tools that we believe contribute to the work of humanitarian and development aid around the world. So great that you're here to find out what we have to say. Today I'm talking to Melody Tamazians and she's the founder of Game Changer Consultancy. She combines her passion on experiential learning and expertise on sexual reproductive health and rights to facilitate gamified solutions for behavioral and institutional change. I'm so glad that you're here today. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, really exciting. And um, I think we're just going to go right into it. Today, we're going to talk about the role of behavioral change in development aid, what it is, why it's important, and how can we as professionals implement it in our work on a daily basis. So that's kind of the final question we're going to try and answer. And yeah. I guess, before, yeah, let's just discuss a bit. And um, for example, the concept of change, um, because I think it's really rooted within development aid overall. But, you know, like, what is it and how is it maybe perceived? Do you have, like, a, a perspective on that? Well, I think if we start with what, what change says is that there is a certain thing happening and we want to make it different, right? That That's change. Yeah. So it always really- means that there's a starting point. Yeah. A status quo or whatever you want to call it, but something that is already there. That's also immediately saying why it's so difficult to change because there is a certain thing that is already happening that we are accustomed to, that uh, is the norm and changing yeah. that yeah, requests us or requires us to, to wanting to change what we are already used to. So then uh, I think we all know the changes that we want to make in our own lives uh, become um, eat more healthy, become more fit, eat less sugar, I don't know. And we already know how difficult that is. So if you look at it from the perspective of development aid, we know that um, what we want to do in development aid is, of course, also change certain norms, change certain behaviors. Because if you want development, something needs to change because we want development so we don't want things to stay the way they are. So we want change. But it also shows how difficult it is because there is a reason that it has been that way for long. For a long time. True. And I think... If, if I think of change, um, often the way it's perceived in development aid or like, well, I don't want to say perceived because I think the goal is really the same what you're saying to move away from a norm or like for something that we're accustomed to that is no longer serving a specific society or, or like mm-hmm. country because, for example, it leads to conflict or it leads to inequality or exclusion. So I think the base is the same, but what often happens is that you were not starting to look at the norm or like, yeah, really what's at the root of it. But instead, we just focus on the consequence. And that's why I think the whole idea of change, which started off which and still has the right attention, has developed into something that is focused exactly on an end result or like on dealing with the consequence and not so much the, the root. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of also why I think it's so interesting to talk about um, about behavioral change. And how, yeah, how it's a part of, 
of development aid. And I know you have quite a strong perspective on this and an idea of where this is and where this should be. So I'm really curious what you think, how, how the link maybe is made between the concept of change and transformation towards uh, behavioral change yeah. and how it's there maybe today. Yeah, I think it's indeed exactly what you say. So we know that we want to change certain norms. We know that behavior change should be at the heart of what we do in development aid. Often, I'm not sure we are actually doing that. Um, we are more um, providing a lot of information. We are setting up a whole lot of trainings and, and that we call them capacity building, if you talk a bit in the jargon of the development aid. But yeah. behavior change actually is about really see where the people are at this point. What do they need? Where do we want them to get? Do they want to get there themselves? So there's like a whole lot of questions you should ask before you even start a process of program design. And um, not sure that happens all the time. I also don't know if we have a system that really, that, that that's <coughs> allows us or professionals to do so. And I think to, to, give a, to give an example of what we a lot of times, I, I think what goes wrong is that if you, if you want to compare, for example, if you want to sell condoms or you want to sell shoes, the big difference is, of course, if I want to sell shoes to you, I have to give the information. I have to convince you why you should have that shoe and you need a shoe anyway. So there's a different entry point of me convincing you to use uh, to buy my shoe that is the perfect Adidas or Nike or whatever. Uh, but the starting point is that you need a shoe anyway. Maybe you don't need my shoe, but I'm going to convince you. In development aid, we usually have cases like selling a condom, which is you're not using a condom and I want you to use a condom. So I have to first convince you of wanting to use a condom and then convince you to buy my condom. Yeah. And that's a behavior and the norm that we need to change. It's not only about convincing you to put your money to buy my product, but it's about convincing you to change a certain behavior you already have. But yeah. these two simple examples maybe show that I feel a lot of times in programs, we treat it as a shoe. We assume people already want what we have to offer and we just need to offer it and make sure that they want ours. But we forget the whole first step, which is so important to make sure that they want it. And then even the step before that, is it correct that we want them to want it? Is it up to us to tell them that they need the condom? And yeah, I give these two simple examples because I think people can really relate to it, how different it is. And uh, it's so obvious, but when you get into a big program, you forget that you're selling a condom, you're not selling a shoe. And you should really yeah. be aware of that. Yeah, you should. And I think, well, it might be a simple example, but it really demonstrates like the disparity and kind of the gap that has, that has been created over the years, I would say, between what is needed and what is offered. And I think it's interesting what you also said, that like the systems in which development aid is working, you're not sure if they allow it. And I think I think that's true, but it doesn't mean they don't have the tools. Um, no. And if I just look at, at the analysis of that I did of like the South African Truth Commission final report, I was mm -hmm. looking into like uh, violent masculinities, and then it was really interesting because it wasn't really mentioned. It just said like you know there are the the gender identities definitely have difficulties with violence and like. You know, it was it was mentioned a couple of times, but when I analyzed the whole thing, I saw that every all like so many little aspects of it that contributed to such violence and specifically violent masculinities, um, but they have never been brought together and kind of seen as kind of like this the actual problem of the violence that at the end they say they want to like 
treat so yeah. much. And then I was like, it's interesting that, you know, they went so much work into creating this report and there was space for people to speak up and like uh, institutions were being analyzed, but then no one was asked to, or maybe had the time to, or the means to, to then really look, where does this violence behavior come from? Because it's not like, you know, a war or like a, uh, context of apartheid doesn't just like happen from one day or another you know the historical culture like within a country as such it has to do with education like the mil military um, uh, rules within a country and it's it goes so deep and it's just too bad because it's all there and yeah. no one is then there is no place for that to be developed and then to be yeah dealt with so to say and I, I think it's a loss and and I think that's the kind of the gap where you say, like, this is what we have to offer and then this is what people want. But actually, if you go back to, yeah, to what the real situation is, often you find that that there might be need for a different perspective. Yeah. yeah. And if you don't link it back to this behavioral change where you say, like, how to develop people to want the change. So that's kind yeah. of, you know, how, how do we deconstruct behavioral change? Because I think that was already a really interesting point. Like if you, in the example of the case of South Africa that you gave, it's um, it's digging and digging and finding out what a root cause is and understanding where it starts. And it's the same as, uh, you know, if, if I keep my same example, I can go to a group of, uh, of young people and say, hey, would you buy this condom? Why? Yes or no. But I can also just ask about, hey, what is important to you in life and and try to use that as an entry point. And that's the same things we see in marketing, right? So if you want to look at best behavior change, look at marketing because I think everyone yeah. loves Coca-Cola. It's everywhere. Nobody knows what's in there. And of course, that's 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 more of an example of a shoe. It's not it's not about changing a certain behavior. Um, no, but marketing then, really played into the behavior of people. So yeah, and it's what we love. In no advertisement, they talk about the product they talk about the experience of sharing food and drinks with your friends and family and and it's super localized all of their advertisements um so it, it can really show that you want to relate to something that's yeah. so well done but the same goes with condoms but the same also goes with if you want to um you know have more improved livelihoods you can really yeah. start and understanding what is important to them is it about not marrying after girl or is it about having an a financial alternative and if you focus on that you don't need to change norms you don't need to institutionally change gender inequalities and and get get all in that because you might get discouraged but you can change a certain consequence and with that a norm will change itself and then you know yeah. that it will change itself with the a belief of the community and not because of your usually Western in intervention. So you also kind of let it take its own course. Yeah, yeah, because the nor changing of the norm is a social process. So if you change the social, which is a person, you know, you, you transform a norm in a way. Um, yeah. 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 And um, I think these are really great examples. And if you, for example, um, if we now look at behavioral change in the concept of development aid, what would be maybe a couple um, concepts that are crucial to like, what do you yeah. think that really have to be there? Yeah, well, I think if, um, 
and, and it's not exclusive, right? So I'm just saying some things that I think from my experience have worked very well and or that I would advise on, on organizations that I work yeah. with. First of all, no, I mean, and no. I, I also want to say, like, I think um, um, I'm also not an expert um, by learning. I, I'm more an expert by, by doing. I, I have more of a um, um, law background, but I worked a lot in different areas and I work a lot in, in through co-creations. Uh, so that's also the first thing, co-create participatory, which we all kind of know, but with participatory, I don't mean uh, come up with a whole program, send it back and, and, and do an interview or a focus group on what they feel. It's more about just going into their world and, and seeing how the world looks like and what they find important and then tying it into something that you find important. So that participatory process, that's always my number one advice. So if someone says, hey, I have a super cool project, I wanna pick your brain on it. My first question is always, have you talked with the end users? Was anyone involved in the program design? Did you do a stakeholder mapping of asking them, uh, do we know what a consequence could be? Making it really participatory. If that's really difficult or you're not in, in a power to do so because maybe you're more from a funding perspective and, and you're not implementing, then making sure things are representative because then participatory kind of follows. So making sure that whoever is going to design a program is a representative of the group that you're going to work with. Um, if you are a funder, you can put this in your condition. We can, we can talk about institutional change being super difficult, but we can also just put a condition in. If you want to work on female rights, you have to be a female-led organization. It's, yeah. it's really not that hard. It's also a bit of an easy excuse to say, yeah, but it's institutional, you can't change it overnight, but you have, you can change, you can push the buttons that you can. As a funder, you can make sure it's representative by conditions as a program or a, an NGO um, that implements or designs programs, you can make sure that you make it participatory or at least the people that are developing it. And if you don't have the resources yeah. to make it participatory, at least you validate it. Um, yeah. or at least ask yourself, am I the person to, to do this? Am I designing a program as a male, uh, Western or even local person without really knowing what a root cause could be? Um, exactly. yeah, th I think that that's step one. Like that's, that's step we one. So we have participation or representation on both local yeah. and institutional level. Yeah. So that's that's one. Then secondly, yeah. I think what is also very important is if you look at development aid, and we all know this, we always say, if you really want to do it well, you want to make yourself redundant. But I mean, that ship has sailed. We have we have organizations existing for a lot of years now. And, and, it, yeah. and again, not, not blaming because I know it's a system. And if you work in it, you also need your own job. So it's again, the system is difficult to tackle. Um, yeah. I also don't think that it shouldn't be there. Um, I do have a love-hate relationship with development aid because sometimes I do feel they're part of the problem and sometimes I know they're part of the solution. But what you see more and more now is that um, NGOs are requested to work together with private actors, which mm -hmm. I think is a good tendency as well. But what we then see is that it's a, it's a little simple project. But with private actors, what I think would work is if you really make it a sustainable uh, collaboration because private actors, their main incentive is profits. And I think from development aid perspective, we see it as maybe dirty or we 
we think the only incentive of working in development should be impact. I, I do challenge that thought because I think if the incentive is money or a profit, at least we know it's sustainable and it will sustain and we will be critical. Yeah. And why not? You're, you're the other part of the collaboration. You can focus on impact. Let the other ones focus on actually making sure it's a sustainable long-term effect uh, because with your, without your funding, it's gone. But the other way of collaboration I see is, for example, if you're a lobby uh, NGO and you do a lot of lobbying advocacy on, let's say, because also this is one of your topics, of course, on sexual reproductive health or on gender, why not put your money not only at doing advocacy for governments, but really for companies? So if you have the Gillette super masculine brand of yeah. racers for men that are preparing for war or I don't know what not their advertisement is about. Let's let, why not make them more aware of the way they show their advertisement is really normalizing certain gender norms. Um, it really is. Kind of bringing it back to the Coca-Cola and the, the shoe yeah. story. You know? It has a massive influence on, on people and how they live their yeah. lives. Yeah, and yeah. that that I, I really see that as a collaboration with private actor, making sure that actually their incentive for profit helps us to change norms in a profitable, sustainable, long-term way. Why not let them make more money becoming more, yeah. you know, using it as a brand or as marketing of being more woke? I don't care whatever their incentive is, because I know if that's the incentive of making money, at least it sustains. If you can uh, convince Netflix yeah. to do more gender flip flips in their characteristics or, you know, because actually, if you look at Gillette, their entire target audience is the actual audience we want to reach. You're never going to reach them as an organization that is mainly focusing on these topics because you're just not, you're boring to them or maybe a threat, but you can convince Gillette yeah. to take a little step, that helps already. Maybe not have the woman always uh, halfly be in screen looking at the man shaving to prepare for very big masculine things. Maybe a little thing there, if, yeah. the, if the man is in a homosexual relationship for an advertisement is already like, massive if they can do that advice it's massive yeah yeah so then so it's kind of like the participation and we have like the collaboration with private actors yeah. so melody what was the last so one if we, so we said hey, participatory representation of private actors but the main main thing is of course the individual you want to get to where they are you want to make sure they're involved but you really want to make sure you understand them and that they understand um, themselves and what they want to do. So the third one that I really believe in is to look for intrinsic motivation. And um, that means that you, you want people to make a change uh, specifically because they want to. And this is a little bit of a paradox because of course, if you look at marketing or the, some examples that I give, it's also about sometimes the financial incentive. That really, that really works in a lot of programs. We see that if you, the example I also gave, if you don't want, uh, if you want to end child marriage, it's really good to give financial alternatives. Uh, financial incentive works, external incentives work. That's, that's not something I'm debating, but what I am saying is that external um, incentives are not durable. And uh, maybe for people, if they find it very interesting to look up is the self-determination theory by Daisy and Ryan. I used it a lot at first in working with groups, uh, working as a trainer, working with youth and group dynamics and how you can make sure that they really want to um, continue. But then at some point it hit me that this is maybe what goes wrong a lot of times as well in development aid. So then uh, the assumption is that people are naturally curious, they're proactive, 
they uh, they want to grow, but they need three basic human needs, autonomy, and autonomy is not individualism, it's rather the freedom of choice. They need competence, feel have the feeling that they're, um, they have competence, that they can do it. And thirdly, it's relatedness, mm -hmm. belonging, a sense of security, a sense of being part of a community, a group. Um, and for me now, every time that I try to critically look at a project or a program or whatever, um, as I said, my first question, are you, is it participatory? Is it representative? Are you working with private actors? But the thirdly, it's always that I try to reflect on, if I look at these three basic human needs, is one of them being harmed? Um, the project that they set up, for example, is it, uh, did they come up with a cool training on how to do fishing to improve livelihoods? Do the people want to do fishing? Do they feel competent to do it? Won't they have a feeling of incompetence because they actually can't? Do they relate to fishing at all as a community? Uh, is it their choice to earn money with fishing? Or are you now kind of rubbing because you know they want to earn? So you're almost misusing that kind of need of them. You are meeting them where they are, the need of making more money or having an income, but you're shoving um, a solution into their face that you never checked if they want that. And maybe they will do it for the money, yeah. but once they get another way of earning money, uh, they might, yeah, not do this anymore because it's not their in internal incentive. And this is really difficult, this, but I do think if you do it this way, it's more durable. And if it's only external, the external incentive yeah. stops at some point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think at the end, like, I have one more question, and then I would love for us to maybe come up with some really concrete actions for every all of these three points that people can take away in their daily lives. But do you then say that those, for example, those basic human needs as like that to develop those is to develop the intrinsic motivation or like to develop or to like mm -hmm. make sure they're secured. Well, the theory assumes, and I really believe that, is that it's there, but sometimes it's been harmed for years. And we can give simple examples yeah. as educational system in even the Netherlands. The autonomy is gone. So a lot of youth, we feel they're too lazy. They don't want to take control of their own life. But if you look back, they're part of a system that their autonomy is is concrete yeah continuously hurt and harmed a bit so it's if you get that away yeah. then the intrinsic motivation falls apart or it has to be fully compensated with the other two which usually doesn't happen and uh you can't expect yeah. people to always get out of a comfort go to a discomfort to find their own internal incentive but as a program designer yeah. i think you should become more aware or are we harming a basic need because then we need to compensate it you can, and you see like maybe simple examples of 100 weeks or organizations that give money. Uh, they promise to give you for a certain amount of time, a certain amount of money, and they give you a lot of trainings, but it's up to you where you put your money. Even if you want to only buy booze, that's up to you. That's autonomy. But you can build the confidence by giving yeah. trainings and showing the successes and, and trusting that they will make the right decision. And that trust that's the assumption that if you give that trust people are naturally curious and they naturally want to do good yeah thanks so much i think it would be great to now because this is that's the whole point of this podcast as well is for us to share our perspectives and our ideas on a specific topic but then at the end um it's really great if we can create like come up even like two or three things um it would be great if we can have like one point per um 
per uh, item of the behavioral change mm -hmm. theory that you said. So we have like the participation or representation. We have the collaboration with private actors and to find intrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. It would be great if we can kind of see if we can give an example for each, what a professional like you and me in a field can do when maybe developing a project. First of all, it's about with the participation and representation. It's very easy. Just ask a question. Hey, I'm in a position of power. Is it my place? Uh, maybe you can't change it, but then how can I make sure that the person that should be in this place at least is heard? And again, this can be quite big. You can you can make it a condition that everything happens in co-creation. You can make sure it's an entire process. You can also just write your program then, but then at least validate it. You can make sure that you um, do some interviews, that you do persona mapping. There's so many, like if you even Google co-creation activities, even do it yourself, just check your assumptions. That's the easiest and the even more easy yeah. way for us as professionals, educate yourself, find your inner critic, keep feeding it, feed it with social media, just follow accounts, decolonize myself, um, no white savior, so many yeah. accounts that can teach you every day about casual, um, casual sexism, casual racism. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's easier. So then I think we already have two, like one, what you just said, educate yourself and two, um, to kind of narrow it down to like the question that you said at the beginning, like, okay, I'm in a position of power. How can I um, make sure that is an inclusive process that's truly representative yeah. of, of the situation yeah. and of the people? Yeah. And if you then look at private actors, what, what do you think would be like a great way of approaching that or including them for example yeah, so i think first of all we really need to get rid of this um impact is the only incentive to do good i don't believe in that i think any incentive is good as long as it leads to that and that doesn't mean that parallel to that you can still educate of course get, get go into conversation with them on why uh only having this marketing doesn't make them a gender equal company fully agree but uh, doesn't mean that whatever they did, did not do good. It normalized certain behaviors and norms. So that's one, I think just really trying to in the, in the industry, whenever it happens, specifically when you're young and you come in, you're also seen as this young energy and you try to do well and to make sure that you keep that and, or, or that you, um, start that if you haven't have, if you don't have that energy now is what I do a lot of times is trend scan. If I'm asked for a certain thing, like, hey, we are uh, doing a program on uh, ending uh, female genital mutilation. The first thing I do is find global trends that have worked on the topic. And then that's more the creative part. You find just cool things like Coca-Cola or uh, sex education as the Netflix series or whatever. And then you bring that into co-creation again. Uh, so a trend scan is nothing more than putting some cool trends for myself writing one sentence of why I think it's interesting and then trying to make those links and seeing like, okay, so I really love uh, Coca-Cola. Why? Because of this reason. Well, that same reason I could use for ending female gender mutilation. Yeah. So a trend scan is the perfect tool. Find trends, uh, share them. I try to share them a lot uh, as content for organizations to get inspired. Yeah. Uh, so ins yeah, inspire yourself, inspire others. That's easy to do. That's easy for the private actor. So, so to say, like, find common ground in terms of what you would like to achieve or like what you want to address in terms of maybe nonprofit uh, organizations and private actors. And the way to do that is also transcan and co-create. Yeah. Great. And then um, for the last yeah. one, intrinsic. Uh, 
Yeah, finding intrinsic motivation. What you know, what can professionals ask themselves every day or check to make sure that is implemented? Yeah, maybe first of all, like just Google self-determination theory. There's very brief videos of three minutes that explains it a little bit. Um, dive deeper into it to understand and if it becomes a bit more natural to you, what now happened to me at any time someone pitches an idea or something to me, I naturally kind of go through the checklist of are these three things in place or not, or can we change it? And the best tool for that, and that is what I love the most about behavior change, it's about people, behavior and changing it. So that means that you can be your own tool. Just go back to yourself. Whenever you're doing a program on whatever, just go back to yourself like, okay, what behavior did I ever want to change? Did I want to stop smoking? When did I do it? What helped me to do it? Why didn't I do it so far? Why am I still eating sugar? I know it's super unhealthy. So does information, is information enough to change behavior? No, because I'm still eating sugar. Use yourself. You're the perfect tool. You're a human that someone I wanted to yeah. change a behavior, maybe did, maybe didn't. And then reflect back on whatever you're doing and see if you were that person really yeah. looking for more information and training or are you looking for something else exactly so if i'm gonna try and, and uh, summarize that in a perhaps this is it's the way of like self-reflecting and deconstructing intrinsic motivation in yourself and in the context as well because it will like in yourself because it will help you understand what yeah. it's built from and then it will be easier to to then sit down with or like, yeah, take a look at the context yeah. and come up with a similar um, outcome there. Because you know your own context and, and never assume you know the other context because you don't. Even if you've been researching it, yeah. you don't. You haven't lived it, so. You don't, no, yeah, because it's not your context. Yeah, yeah completely agree. All right, well, I think this is as concrete as it can be when we're talking about theories and hypothetical uh, project uh, development and design of um, development aid. Um, I think it's really great that we came up with some concrete, maybe, yeah, checklist or questions that you can ask yourself as a professional when looking at um, behavioral change and then specifically for participation, the inclusion of private actors and to find the intrinsic motivation that is really required altogether yeah. for behavioral change. So I really want to thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. For your contribution. Um, thanks, Melody. Thanks um, for joining me tonight or today. Thanks, everyone else, for listening. I hope this was something that, that helps you um, or gave you some new insights. To find the other episodes of Transform the Norm, the podcast, you can either visit my website, transformthenorm.co, or you can find them on Spotify. I hope you'll listen to the other ones again. And I'm really curious also to, to um, hear what you think. So thank you. And I'll, yeah, I'll see you yeah. soon. Thanks for the Bye-bye.